Oh, wait, we're on. Hello. Welcome to another Halftime Report. I'm not David Hasselhoff. So those of you tuning in who are hoping to see David Hasselhoff because of the Halftime Report. Disappointed. Sorry, very disappointing. <laughs> I'm disappointed because I'm not David Hasselhoff because he has a lot more money than me. For those of you who are, are younger than, you know, say 30, he was very famous once. He was Knight Rider and, and Baywatch. Anyway, that's not what we're here for. Priscilla Giddings is here. That means this show is rated PG. Uh, that was my dad joke for the evening. Uh, welcome, Representative Giddings, to hey. the program. How are you? Full throttle. Yeah, you're full full throttle because uh, you're 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 serving time in the legislature and you're serving time on the campaign trail. All those things are very very difficult. And right. mother of two. And mother of two, the most yes. important job of them all. Yes. And your kids are very young. Two and three. What's it like being on the campaign trail and being in the legislature while you're taking care of your your little ones? You know, it's busy, busy. And my two-year-old, she has learned to turn her tears into, I miss you, mom. And so I hear a lot of, I miss you, mom. But uh, it's short-lived. And my husband is a retired military. I'm military. We understand the fight for freedom is right here in Idaho. And this is way better than a deployment to Afghanistan. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, although I'm certain there there are some similarities. We, we may get into that. I don't know. Um, <laughs> But you, it's interesting you talk about that because um, I've been telling folks in the legislature, folks who've expressed interest in running for office, that uh, this is hard work um, and that in order to save America, you have to do hard things. Um, and we've been kind of talking about the the changes that have occurred. You've been in the legislature for, was this your third term? Is that right? Correct. Um, and... I don't know. Did you tell me in the span from from when you started to today, how much have the issues changed? Mm. You know, ever since this whole COVID crisis has hit, that has been the focus. But the reality is, is that over the last six years, the issues haven't changed that much. I mean, our state budget has almost doubled in the last six years. So we're spending like drunken sailors. That hasn't changed. And giving away our authority to this growing government, that hasn't changed. And now we're just seeing more people who are recognizing it as their freedoms are being taken away from them. And so the, the group of those that are aware and now watching is getting larger and larger. And we're seeing more people starting to push back at school boards and local level and at the state level, too. We've never had more people interested in running for the legislative seats than, than in my entire experience. Um, That's a very interesting uh, way of putting it. I always felt like when we when we started the Freedom Foundation 13 years ago, um, the conversation was about tax policy and urban renewal and getting rid of a regulation here and there. And it just seems as, and we, and we always sort of understood that, you know, at the, at the end of the day, it's all about freedom, but now there's this, uh, parade of characters out there who have learned to become mini dictators. And so it's become real for people. What all these little policies that were so aggravating before were all about. So do you, do you, I mean, you see it growing on the outside. Is the same thing happening in the legislature? Are, there, are your colleagues also in this space where they're, I'm fighting for freedom, I'm fighting for America, or do they kind of see it as 
business as usual, same as it's always been. I've actually been surprised too, when you look at the close votes, because in the legislature, we go through hundreds of bills, hundreds of votes, and really a small percentage of them are close votes. And when I first got in, I always remember the, the vote count was 48 or 42 to 28 <clears throat> over and over and over again. And I've actually been surprised to see in some of the close votes recently that it's actually some of them it's actually decreasing um, where we're just getting 50 to 20 in some cases uh -huh. now mind you today we did have a out of nowhere we were able to kill a supplemental budget um, yeah that's that's the house i remember <laughs> <laughs> right and i i almost it's this weird um paradigm shift i mean you have those of my colleagues who are fearful of losing this upcoming election and so they are acting much differently than they have in the past. But you also have $20 billion of extra money, fake money, that's flooding in from the federal government. And people are kind of we're, we're spending everything, spend, spend, spend. But then once in a while, there's a vote here and there where uh, we're actually voting to, to stop that spending. So I don't know that it's there. People are acting very um, differently right now. Are they are they acting more conservatively, or are they acting? I mean, what what, is, what are you seeing exactly in terms of behavior change? Uh, I don't know that I can dissect it. I feel like it's different on every issue. There are some issues that they're more conservative, and others um, where they're not. I mean, we really should not be spending our grandchildren into eternal indebtedness. But in the budget committee meetings this morning. I mean, the, the spending is just flying through there. You know, I, I, I heard that actually in the Commerce Committee yesterday, there was a bill and it came from Scott Syme, a noted conservative legislator, or I mean, noted Republican, well, a, he's a legislator from Canyon County. Who wears a mask. Yes, all the time. <laughs> I'd love to have Scott Simon. That would be really fun. Uh, make a note of that, Dustin. Uh, I, I'd love to have Scott Simon. But, but he was in the committee yesterday presenting a bill, which passed. It's going to be on the floor soon, I'm sure. Um, creating a, an Idaho workforce um, housing program. Uh, and the, the, in that bill, the state's going to create a housing workforce plan, you know, and, and he says, well, it's going to be funded with money from the federal government and acknowledged in the course of that in, in his, in his testimony and his debate in favor of the bill and committee that that money was going to be paid back by our kids and grandkids and maybe their grandkids. Yeah. And I, I'm just, I was sort of shocked by that. Um, but I, I guess the, the question that I have for you is, he, he said something that I think you hear a lot, which is, well, if we don't spend that money, then some other state's going to spend it. We may as well spend it here in Idaho. How do you answer that? Well, I, I think there's a, hmm, there's a breakdown in understanding the way indebtedness happens. I mean, when a country is $20 trillion in debt, and it's we're over 140% of our GDP to debt ratio, um, no nation has been able to survive that. And so what does that look like when we start to fail or the market starts to, to fall? It's not just owing your debtors. Now we're talking about enslavement and servitude for the next generations. I mean, a lot... 
you can almost compare it to the, these mandates. If you have to take the shot or you're going to lose your job. And so now they're putting this requirement on you where um, you can't raise, make money for your family. And that's the bondage and the servitude. I think that we are putting in jeopardy here for our, our grandkids. It's not, they can't repay it. I mean, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars per taxpayer. They're never going to be able to repay that, but they're going to have to sacrifice their freedoms as an American. And to me, that is a greater cost than just owing money. And that's where I fear um, there's um, kind of a mental breakdown there as far as the, a reality check. We need a reality check. Why, why is that lost on your colleagues, though? I mean, it, it, it seems to me the hard vote here, and I, I tend to think that the hardest things to do in policy are usually the right things to do. It's easy to pass a bill that gives money to somebody or some interest group or, or whatever. Voting that down is very, very difficult. Um, but the argument you just made to do that is is extraordinarily compelling. Great. We built some workforce housing for you. Sorry, you don't have a means of being able to pay your own bills because your taxes are so high because of the debt that we accrued and you know, your dollar has been devalued substantially. Yeah. But, but I mean, when you go back to your to your district, when you you've been traveling the state and you explain this to folks, what do people say? You know, there's probably a variety of things, uh, probably people who've been to other countries where they didn't have freedom. Um, you oftentimes you don't realize that there's an absence of freedom until those freedoms have been taken away. And I think that's why a lot of people who are moving to Idaho, who are refugees, why they are helping push back because they are coming from a place where they lost their freedom. And now they can see that they're, we're losing it right here in Idaho. And so now they're willing to fight back and to push back. Those that maybe have never seen that, that loss of freedom, they're more complacent and maybe don't fully understand the, the ramifications. So, you know, a lot, everybody has different perspectives, right? And, and also the, the lack of knowing and studying history. I mean, in the classroom. They're just not teaching real history anymore. And we see that with this whole woke agenda, social justice that, that you guys are experts on. Um, We've done a lot of research. Yeah. On it. So lots of, lots of layers. I don't know that there's one answer. So when you travel around and you go to particularly Republican events, Lincoln mm -hmm. day events or mm -hmm. central committee meetings, Republican women and so on, there still seems to be a, a lingering, we call it the establishment group, the folks that, you know, they feel their job is to be the cheerleaders for the Republican leaders, whatever they say, whatever they do. Oh, yay. You know, Brad Little or yay. You know, uh, um, I don't even know. Um, uh, names all of a sudden. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> Brandon Wolf. Wow. It's been a long day, everybody. Give me a break. But they, but they see them and they, their job has historically been, they've, view themselves as the cheer squad for the Republican Party. And then you have these other folks who say, no, we're not the cheer squad. We're the we're the team owners. And we want to know why you haven't scored a touchdown in, in four years. You promised us this, this, and this, and you haven't delivered. So what's happening with that? How, how do you view that schism? And, and who's winning in that battle? 
Right. So what you're talking about is the civil war inside the Republican Party in Idaho, right? Because there's no litmus test to determine who's a Republican. Anybody can claim to be a Republican. And so we have a lot of people with very global ideologies who are in the Republican Party. And now they foot stomp all you know, the positive things. And we all love Idaho. We live in Idaho for a reason. And so when they use their top three things of you know, low unemployment rate and extra money in the bank and right. um, people moving here faster than any other nation. You know, those are their three talking points and they beat them into the ground every time um, that we're a conservative state. And these, but they're also failing to look at some of our weaknesses and the downfalls and the problems that we're seeing in our schools and with work and taxes and these uh, global companies moving in, Meta and um, the water problems, right? And so I think with good leadership means looking for the future and making a plan, you know, look at your weaknesses and strengthen those to plan for the future instead of just reveling in the current status quo. And that's what we have seen in the legislature is that it's very reactionary to problems instead of planning for the future. And I think Idahoans see that in the upcoming election, May 17th, will definitely, um, I think, be the deciding factor on if enough Idahoans are recognizing that and knowing to stop watching television, the local news, and to actually pay attention to um, to real news sources and um, to be able to decide how what the future of Idaho is going to look like. How many of your colleagues do you think fall in that camp of what you just described, this sort of status quo, not really projecting out far into the future, not not thinking about the sum total of the impact of their policy decisions. I mean, is it majority? Is it? It's a super majority. So there are 105 legislators, there are 20 Democrats, and there are 20 to 30 conservatives on a good day. So, on a good day. so if you add up the Democrats with the conservatives, there's your there's 50, so 55 who are more of just the more progressive Republicans who go along to get along and enjoy the status quo. Are, are they? Are they? At all Republican? I mean, are did they? I mean, it's hard to people aren't monolithic, and I'm not really trying to box you in, but I'm really trying to get an understanding of what your viewpoint on it. Are they Republicans, and they maybe don't understand the platform? Did they run as Republicans because they couldn't win as Democrats, and they really wanted to be in office? Well, our current Speaker of the House refused to sign a pledge to sign the Republican platform that he would adhere to it. Um, so I think that's a good indication for you that they, it's not about the platform and the Republican ideals for those 55. Um, it's more of, um, I think, associated to special interest money and and those outside pressures. I really want to ask Scott Bedke that question too, by the way. He's been invited. I, I I believe we've invited everybody to be on on the program since so you know even democrats liberal democrats we love to have liberal democrats on here I had lance clow on the other day oh wait did i say that out loud or was i just <laughs> thinking that wow that's going to come back to haunt me okay um so anyway tell me what it, where where you fit in then in this whole structure because it looks to me like you ron nate heather scott um perhaps Dorothy Moon, I'm sure there are others that I could name as well, yeah. uh, find themselves 
on the on the on the conservative end of the spectrum and they're fighting with these other people and you know uh people look at that and they go what in the heck is going on here what does that mean so I guess what what's your question as far as where do I find myself? Where, where, where does how do, how do you fit into that whole that whole superstructure of how do how do you make that work? I guess on a day to day basis where you've got a supermajority of Democrats and Republicans who are on the other side. They they're linked arms. They have a supermajority, and you're on that other. That what, what do you do with that? Right. So we're in a losing battle, and all we can do is expose corruption. And so you see that over and over again, whether it's in the budget committee where we have 18 progressives against two of us conservatives, we just vote no every time and it's 18 to two, but we bring attention to what's going on. And the same is true for a lot of the bills. And right now we're getting steamrolled. Conservative ideals are getting steamrolled. What are examples of those that you see? Um, well, I guess you could see all of any of the conservative ideas are, are not even being allowed to go through the Senate. Um, and all the big spending is just rolling through. So just today, a motion to um, in the budget committee, $50 million um, for extra, I might have to remind me the exact, but it was extra of this ARPA money, mm -hmm. just an extra $50 million. I mean, you're outvoted every time. What was the vote? 18 to 18 to guess it. You know, it used to be they they had um, uh, uh, four Democrats on on the committee and it was 16 four. The Dem Republicans were all linked together. Now the Democrats and Republicans are all voting together and except for you and Ron Nate and maybe occasionally pick up Wendy Horman or something. Right. Was the budget committee stacked to be that way or is that just how it happened? <laughs> Well, you know, the Speaker of the House picks all the members of each committee. And so um, obviously it's stacked to to spend and to grow government. There's no, there doesn't seem to be any, the other really interesting thing is, by the way, since you're on the budget committee and we just started talking about the budget, I really yeah. want to get into the budget. I yeah. love, I love talking about the budget, maybe more than, than I should. But um, just starting with the basics, there's no effort, there's no, there's no mechanism for the public to even have a say on how that money is spent. Right. No public testimony. That is allowed. extraordinary. Have you asked anybody about that and what can be done to fix that? It's really, it's the, the chairman's call, speaker of the house. It's their call and it's tradition. Is there some value in not having the public being able to testify in committee? <laughs> you can expedite your spending. That is the value. So when you see, when you see the agency, heads come in, they, they, they put them on parade one after another. Here's mm -hmm. the head of DEQ. Here's the head of the Department of Health and Welfare. Here are the university presidents and on and on and on. Yeah. Um, do you see, I mean, is, is there opportunity in there? Do you, do you see things where, where somebody from the general public might go, wait a minute, uh, he just proposed spending $2 million on uh, social emotional learning. Here's my perspective on that. No, no, no public input. I mean, really the only input I get is when I put out my budget bummers in my newsletter every week and I share some of the surprising things that make it through the budget and people respond to me. I ask for their input, but other than that, there's no public input. Has any of the members of the committee ever said to you, you know, this really is a problem. We need to do something about this. No, that's, 
Why is that? I don't know. Is yeah. is it is it are we just is it sort of just entropy? Um, inertia, I, think, I guess, is better it, better word for it. Yeah, but the reality is, is that they're in the majority. You know, when there's 18 of them, they can do whatever they want, and they want to do whatever the 220 plus state agencies, boards, and commissions are telling them to do in cooperation with the governor. And so they really strongly believe that they're doing what's best for Idaho and the, the supermajority of Idaho. At the end of this session, will the legislature spend less than the governor, the same as the governor, or more than the governor? It looks like more than the governor. I'm seeing, so normally the governor provides the recommendation on how much he wants to spend. Um, but what I'm noticing is several recommendations higher than the governor. One would be employee compensation. That's a big one. Yes. So basically the committee, um, and it was, I think, Scott Syme who led the charge, decided to um, reimburse state employees more than what the com um, the CEC, so that's the committee who works on that, they made a motion to increase more than what the governor's recommendation is. So and state employees are looking at a like 7% um, increase. Their argument was something to the effect that, well, inflation's a problem and uh, we've got to go and, and keep employees here just the same as the private sector does. What's going to be your leading argument against that when, when the time comes? When um, you're going to vote on every single budget, it's going to include that CEC figure. And then when it gets to the floor, you're going to have that same debate all over again. What What's your leading argument going to be? Well, the argument for CEC is kind of um, that ship has sailed, right? Because you vote on whether or not to approve the 7% pay raise, and then that gets inputted into every single bill. And so you can't really continually debate CEC in every single bill. Now you're going to be voting on the merits of each individual um, bill. But I think um, one of the concerns is, and that's why I really appreciate Representative Ron Nate, who's an economics professor and is on the budget committee with me, is you know he sees the economic impact when you have skyrocketing prices and you're taxing those higher prices, then you're automatically going to have more tax money coming into the state. So, so then to try to pay more employees, more money, it actually is not a wise thing to do in a, a year where we're getting this balloon of federal money, $20 billion, when our state budget's only about $11 billion. So it's just kind of, it's creating um, a spiral effect of just growth that is unsustainable. Do do your I, mean, I keep asking about your colleagues. I guess I should I shouldn't ask about your colleagues because you don't know. But but it would seem that somebody there, even in the moderates and liberals, would be saying, "Gosh, yeah, this 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 thing's going to come to an end, and it's going to be a horrible train wreck." You know, I think uh, people have rose-colored glasses on. and, and They have rose-colored glasses. Are they doing it because they figure it's going to sell with their constituents, that, that somehow it'll make them more electable? Um, everybody wants more stuff. I mean, like just today, um, millions and millions of dollars for our, our veterans' um, facilities and services. I mean, who who's going to vote against veterans? We have to support our veterans, Wayne. Well, yeah, well, you know, and I was looking at that proposal, and I can't remember what it was, but it was some colossal figure per room for each one of, what is it, 165 rooms or something like that? 
It's and almost eight hundred thousand dollars per per room for sixty veterans. I just I, I found that to be amazing. No one's talking about that. But you're right. There's this sort of oh, we can't talk about veterans. We can't talk about seniors. The we, deaf and the blind. The deaf and the blind. Anyone with a disability. Yeah. We're not allowed. We have to support them no matter what. Even if the policy Healthcare. is odious. Yep. So let's talk some more specifically about some of the items in the budget that we've been watching very, very closely, which includes things like the college and universities. Yeah. And I've asked everybody who's come on the program, even folks who aren't on the budget committee or aren't on education, yeah. what should happen with that? You had, first of all, you were there. You, Marlene Trump from Boise State came in, Scott Green from uh, U of I came in, Kevin Satterley from uh, ISU, and those are the big ones. Lewis Clark State College, I think, had some issues, but maybe not as big as the, the three U's. Yeah. Do you buy what Marlene Trump is selling when she says that her programs for social justice have evolved? Uh, I, I don't know what she's selling, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> but as far as them evolving, um, what I see are and hear are from students who feel like they're being discriminated against and graduates who are embarrassed to call on BSU their alma mater mm. and mothers who pulled their children out of the daycare at BSU because they were indoctrinating them with racial books that are just um, un-American. And that to me is very alarming and donors pulling money from the institution. And so it's being backfilled by hundreds of millions from free federal money. Um, this is just an, an indoctrination center and they're having a hard time um, finding jobs and they're coming out of college with debt. And so there are a lot of concerns with our colleges and universities, but it's just being ignored the concerns and Everyone's just focusing on what they think is the positive outcomes. Um, and they keep focusing on that word. It's outcomes. So, boy. Right. So, uh, <laughs> well, we can talk about outcomes if they really want to get into it. Not what they say it yeah. is. But so, so okay. So, Ron asked Marlene the question. Yeah. We told you to cut at Boise State $1.5 million. Her answer was, well, our programs have evolved. He, she didn't identify anything. Scott Green shows up from University of Idaho, presents a report that they commissioned a law firm to do about the Freedom Foundation, where mm -hmm. they say, oh, nothing to see here, no social justice. Do you, do you buy that about University of Idaho? No, we, we get examples all the time from students. I mean, they're they're sending us their coursework. Um, we we know it's just a you know the president of the state board is saying that we're chasing ghosts, um, and the reality is is that they're just ignoring the problem. Why is that? Why are they ignoring it? Yeah, I mean, do they do they, do they sincerely? I'm not trying to get you to go inside people's heads, but <laughs> you must have an opinion. Do you think that they sincerely believe that there's really nothing happening? Or are, are they just flat out lying about it? I don't think they see a problem. They believe in social justice. That's what it is. They believe in it. It's, it's a faith. Faith is a very big word. Yeah. Are you saying that they are um, devout followers of it, that they, that they defend it? you know, the way they would defend their yeah. religion, their belief in God, their belief in their, their church. It appears that way. Wow. That's a lot. Not really. 
You don't there's think a lot so? of people who believe it. How bad do you think it is? I think there's probably, it. you know, depends on where you go. In Idaho, I think there's probably a good 30, 40% of Idahoans who truly do believe that we're inherently racist. Are those people in positions of power? Are they in elected office or, or holding appointed or? or yeah, or? probably. I mean, it, probably all gamuts. Um, we see them in the north end of Boise a lot. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm speaking more yeah. you know, at, at the Capitol and the people that you hang around with. Are you yeah. seeing folks that are their social justice warriors? Yeah, a lot of state employees. Um, I think that's where you're going to see a lot of it. But And a lot of people in Idaho don't realize what's going on. They don't realize that there's specific training for this. Um, for social justice. They also advocacy. really don't seem to understand also that it's not like when, when they have it in school, it's not, okay, kids, yeah. time for CRT 101. It's yeah. more an undercurrent. It's sort right. of baked into the various ways things are taught and the way students are to perceive themselves and others. Yeah, an example would be with the AVID program, right? It's for advanced learners in schools, districts across Idaho, and teachers love AVID. Um, and I have highlighted one of the pieces of their curriculum that is a privilege walk yep, where there's too. 45 questions where these teachers are asking students to take step forward or step backward based on you know, maybe the racial profile of their family or their education profile and pure discrimination. And so this is just one example of um, this social justice ideology and critical race theory being used right here in Idaho in AVID. And I had a teacher very defensively just kind of attack me and say, well, I, I, you're saying all teachers are bad. And um, those AVID programs have helped so many kids. You can't, just because there's this one thing, you can't discredit the rest of the program. Well, that was never my intention. I wasn't trying to discredit the rest of the program, but we have got to cut out this racial discrimination that's inside the curriculum or the, else it's a cancer that continues to grow. The point was to say that it's there. Right. It's part of it. Right. And 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 maybe it's something that they don't even realize is is signif how significant, how important it is in the leftist agenda. Right. So, okay, we have all of this woke stuff, it's buried into the system, mm -hmm. elected officials, uh, uh, hired state employees, uh, commissions boards, it runs everywhere, it's in cities and counties, and you're on the budget committee. So well, well, if, if it, it, I guess, what do you do about that then? How do you, how do you view, say, let me go back to the college and university mm -hmm. budget, because I don't think anyone's gonna defund Boise State, U of I, ISU, mm -hmm. and so forth, they're still going to get money. But um, that necessarily means then some of that money is going to go to things that we won't we won't like. How do you stop it? How do you stop this? How do you stop the bulk of it? How do you get the universities back to their core mission? You know, I think the answer to that is the answer to everything I'm hearing from constituents who are concerned about mandates and masks and um, businesses being shut down and churches being shut down and colleges that are, you know, teaching social justice. And it all comes back to the executive branch and the governor of your state. Elections have consequences. The governor controls 
all of those things. And we're not going to get, um, I would say, solid, conservative, um, not necessarily even conservative, but strong colleges um, until we have a leader in the executive branch that exhibits courage like we see in Governor DeSantis. In Florida. The, the governor appoints the state board. The state board hires the presence of the universities and then the presence of the universities go and run their schools. The legislature said cut two and a half million dollars from social justice. The governor signed that bill. Who's most to blame for the fact that the schools ignored you? So the executive branch is the enforcement arm of the law. It's absolutely all the responsibility falls on the executive branch, in my opinion. So you blame the governor then for not doing anything about that? Absolutely. So what should what do you think he should have done? You hold the line and you enforce the law. And that's what I think Idahoans expect from good leadership. But we're seeing a trend where the law is being blurred um, the bounds of the laws being expanded, and and that is negatively impacting our entire state, even down to um, elections, um, Second Amendment laws, and things that we're fighting in the legislature right now, working on bills because the law is being blurred. So, the governor, the go you, you passed the bill, two and a half million dollars cut. Governor signed the law. Um, no one did. No one followed that. No one did anything. Mm -hmm. um, let's say that you were the governor, what would you have done? I would absolutely, well, first of all, <laughs> there was $20 million being used for social justice at, ideology. At minimum, <laughs> and you cut two and a half million. It was, a, it was a, basically a rounding error. You weren't really telling them to really break a sweat. Right. So the two and a half million in my world wouldn't have even been a consideration. Oh, so you're saying if you had been <laughs> governor, it would have been a larger number. Right. Uh, Okay, fair enough. But and we would have had a new state board and new presidents too. That's what you would have done. You would have absolutely. You know, you, you have to hold people accountable. When the Constitution says students should not be, um, um, you know, categorized by their race or their color, and no political ideologies in those books should be in the schools, you hold the line, and and you say none. None means none. It's weird though that, I mean. You, 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 and your colleagues wrote the 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 budget, you know, or passed the budget. Mm -hmm. Is are, are the members of JFAC equally angry that they were ignored? Um, maybe publicly, but um, I would yeah. I would love to see examples of, <laughs> of publicly also. But uh, you know, the other thing that I have found in my six years of experience is you. Um, it's called pass the buck and everybody is really good at Very passing, good at passing the, buck. the buck. One of the things that I keep hearing in the, on the pass the buck theme is, oh, well, you know, I think the money might come from dedicated funds, meaning student fees. So I've got to find out more about that. And if it comes from the general fund, that's different. But if it comes from student fees, why, you know, that that's okay. It, do you care? Does that make a difference to you? Absolutely, because that's money coming from our students and our parents and our hard-working families across the state. So um, that revenue is still coming from people in one form or another. So is that is that argument? What, what is that based on? Is that just something somebody came up with as an excuse to not deal with the problem, or are they, do they legitimately think that that you're not supposed to deal with agencies that have fees and fees are 
or in a whole other bucket? Yeah, it's just another bucket of, of revenue. And it's when it comes out of the general fund, it seems like it's um, there's more impact maybe as opposed to that dedicated money that's, yeah. I, I, I think it's, it's all the semantics. Same. It's all the same, it's right? All, that's yeah. what, I, kind of what I thought yeah. too. So, <laughs> all right. You're, you're not the governor. <laughs> you're not lieutenant not governor. <laughs> not yet. Okay. Um, but – uh, what would you expect that the legislature should do with this now? This college and university issue where they've not changed anything. They've now they've had three years to get their act together. They were warned about it in 2019. The legislature was, was specific. You get, you get back to your core mission in 2020, actually cut money in 2021. And now it's 2022. What do you, what's your expectations going to happen with that? You know, in my world, I think I'd start taking it out of the governor's budget. <laughs> okay, but we're not. But the reality is, is that we just don't have enough votes to do anything, Wayne. You're not going to do anything? They're going to get away with it? You really believe that's what's going to happen? Absolutely. Really? Yeah. Last year, there were members of the House that were willing to vote down the college and university budget when it only cut $400,000. This year, they're going to say... Okay, you didn't cut anything. You've done nothing. The LBGTQ office is still open in the University of Idaho mm -hmm. campus. The Gender Equity Center is still open. Yeah. You still have chief diversity officers. You have all these degree areas that are focused on social justice as part of their core mission. Yeah. And the answer is going to be, all right, you win. Yeah, it's an election year. You would have think I I, I would have uh, would have imagined that in election year the reverse would be true that people would be more adamant to demonstrate how conservative they are and how they're not going to put up with the leftist stuff. I hope you're right, and you know we'll probably see. But you have a you week. have you have a front row seat to it, so I'm saying <laughs> you must have a perception that really what you said is probably true that um, no one's going to do it, no one's going to be held accountable. No, that's amazing. That's really absolutely stunning. But I, maybe a, a lot of other people will just get in their big rig trucks and join the trucker rally instead. So <laughs> it might be something worth doing. I, I suppose that if you have nothing else left, right? What other budgets are you? I, I wanted to. I wanted to ask about just the budgets generally because there's so many of them. What 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 ones are are you looking that are like? Oh my gosh! I can't believe they're asking for this. You know, I like to beat up on public television every year. Oh, God bless you for yeah, that. Because they, they want to grow their budget more and they continue to use your taxpayer money to um, promote a lot of the social justice ideologies um, right into our the homes of our kids. Like, I won't let my kids watch it anymore because they're talking about how white parents are the problem. Um, so that's always a fun one, too. Last year, you came within one vote of killing that budget. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, Ben Adams was on the program the other day, and I asked him about that because he told me he's going to support the public television budget because his kids love public television. And we had this discussion about taxation is theft and you know proper rule of government and so on. Yeah. Um, but what what he was he was one of the votes that voted no, but it was because he had a substitute that day. And so it seems as if that's not even going to be a fight this year. No. Extraordinary. Even yeah. with all the social justice stuff going on, people are just going to let it let it go. Yeah. 
I always kind of wondered why it is that we always talk about, man, those public television people and national public radio, they're terrible, and Congress should really do something about that. And Congress really should. But here in Idaho, you have an 85% Republican legislature that can't vote to get rid of public TV or state general fund support for national public radios, megaphone in the Valley, which is Boise public radio, Boise yeah. state public radio. Yeah. There are 85% that have an R by their name, but there's really only about 20. That's the reason why I don't think that. Do, do, do you think that's really what it is that, that the reason that they support public television is because they're not really committed to the Republican party platform. If you read the platform and then you compare it to what's shown on some of those TV shows. Absolutely. That's shocking. <laughs> you can't even get a vote to get rid of the state general fund support for public radio. I'm not even saying get rid of it. Just, I mean, I would love, yes, I am saying get rid of it, <laughs> but I'm saying for the purposes of this legislature, yeah. it's probably maybe half a million dollars that tax, but it's not a huge amount of money. You can't even excise a half million dollars that goes to the public broadcasting services, the radio service in Boise and in Idaho and Pocatello. Uh, you know, we can try, but I mean, just today we mandated business requires six months of birth control to their the employees Senate. That was in the, the Senate. Senate. Yep. That's really true. I mean, so if we're going to be mandating birth control on people, what makes you think that we can get rid of public radio? I want to get back to that, but I really want to, what, what else do you look at? So for example, last year, there was a huge fight over Lieutenant governor's budget. Yeah. There which, will be another fight which this you, year. I'm sure there will, which, yeah. and, and you won the fight last year, right? But there was so much time and energy devoted to that. And yet no one's talking about the, not even an elephant. Yeah, it's it's not an elephant in the room. It's a it's a whale. Um, it's it's ginormous, and it's swallowing. It's the biggest program in all of state government. What has to happen to get the legislature to take action on that? I think back to getting a new governor. It's really about that. Yeah. Are there are, are are there are there members who are talking about this maybe quietly that they're going oh this is a real thing we got to go do something by way of reference. Um, the, the Medicaid budget itself today is bigger than the general fund was what, just even a couple of years ago. Right. It's huge. Yep. And hundreds of millions of, you know, inaccurate payments and even supplementals for last year, because we continually underestimate how much it's actually going to cost taxpayers. Uh, in the meantime, though, and this wasn't this year, but what, a year or two ago, uh, we have people like Speaker of the House voting to increase free dental care as part of Medicaid. Um, so you're just continually trying to grow government. Who is behind the fact that the, that issue is not being addressed? Uh, which issue? The Medicaid the issue. Who, who's the, uh, what, what stands in the way of the legislature itself taking that? I understand you need leadership from the governor's office, but there's mm -hmm. got to be some effort, somebody out there saying this is the biggest problem we face in on the state expenditure side, this thing is out of control. No, there's really no, um, I think, I don't hear anybody talking about that, except for, you know, maybe the work that you're doing, but yeah. I'm not, I'm not in the legislature. <laughs> None of my staff is in the, in the legislature, right. thankfully, but right. so no one's talking about that. We're outnumbered. Why is the <clears throat> Medicaid budget less important than the Lieutenant Governor budget? 
because it's helping people and people who don't have money who are college students that need free health care that we have to care about those people wayne <laughs> yeah but isn't there somebody out there i mean i kind of for years and i don't know the new figure i need to go get the latest data but for for many years um, we were at a place where half the babies born in idaho were born on medicaid is that a crisis not if you like socialism oh because in europe everybody's on the government program <laughs> right oh I did read in my uh, my high school government book that America has you know been uh, thankfully getting to be more like Europe. So um, absolutely, you know, it's all really really great now that we've learned to adopt some of the socialism. You actually, from, I am surprised, or not really surprised, but a lot of what the Democrats proposed in personal bills this year were policies likened to that of Europe. I, I kept thinking, so I lived overseas in Germany for a while. I was active duty military and you know they have a lot of um, special healthcare things, um, a lot of paid time off, maternity leave, paternity leave, those things. And that's, we're seeing lots of policies by the left, just like Europe. And by the left, you're not just talking about the Democrats, to be clear. You're also talking about the Republicans. Right. Yeah. So over in the Senate, we, you mentioned before that the contraceptive bill, uh, six months of free contraceptives, I think is what the policy is calling for, uh, passed the Senate. Uh, what do you think the odds are of that passing the House? Ooh, I don't know. I, I, I'm hopeful. It, it might be a really close vote. Really? Yeah. Why is that? Well, I mean, back to that vote count of, you know, 42 to 28, but like you said, in an election year, we might have a few more who will um, vote against it. It's weird because, um, you know, that's one of those business mandates that I heard the Senate saying earlier that they weren't terribly fond of. Well, uh, I think the House today, we spent hours, it felt like, um, talking about whether or not businesses could mandate a shot or a mask. Explain the difference between the government mandating uh, contraceptives and the government mandating <laughs> that you shouldn't tell people they have to put a vaccine in their body, for those who don't <laughs> understand the difference. <laughs> yeah. There is no difference. And that's why the, the hypocrisy or back to that pass the buck, right? You know, on the floor of the house, when debates start flying, it's like everybody uses the same excuse, just depending on what side of the argument they want to be on. So. May I say that you sound very jaded about the legislature? <laughs> and this will be my last year in the legislature. So you, rightly so. I did think you they feel that way when you first got in? Mm, no. What were your expectations when you arrived six years ago? Yeah. When I first got here, I was actually really excited to try to guide Idaho policy to just continue to be strong conservative state. I had no idea that um, we were in the process of doubling our budget as a state. Um, I had no idea that we were losing conservative values left and right, um, to losing our freedoms, really. And so, no, I was a lot more optimistic then. I, I thought that um, I could use my training and my talents as as a leader and a uh, negotiator with you know other military um, members across the world that I'd be able to use that to help Idaho. And in reality, I've been kind of treated more like a mushroom and um, pushed to the side while this globalist agenda just steamrolls through our great state. When did you realize that was a problem? 
I would say probably the first year, you know, the first year I showed up and the constitution says that, you know, we need to read the bills and there's a process <laughs> that just says, no, reading the bills is, you know, for, um, <laughs> for our ancestors. Um, when that was also when they brought in a bunch of uh, uniform laws and I quickly learned what the uniform law commission is and how basically they're trying to standardize all the laws for all the states. And so it's more of a, a global, like getting rid of state boundaries and the 10th amendment, um, those, and it just continued to build up until, you know, COVID and churches and businesses. And, and now we're at a breaking point. It, it, it's interesting. I just wanted to go back to the whole thing where I, I thought it was strange too, when I first saw it in, in 1995 and, um, yeah, the, the the and you actually had to fight over the process. They become so sloppy in the House, um, where they get up and they're supposed to say they don't. The, the Senate actually does it right. Yeah. They get up and they say, "I ask unanimous consent that we dispense with further reading of this bill." The journal shows been read three times at least, section by section, placed before the Senate for final consideration. Who you think I've actually done it before? I just watched it so much. <laughs> but over in the House, they got to a place where they actually did it correctly years ago, and now they just get up there and they say. Um, uh, Mr. Speaker, I ask unanimous consent. We don't read the bill. Right. And then somehow the journal clerk's supposed to miraculously deduce from that, that that meant that he also meant that his, his unanimous consent request was that we put together a really big lie that appears in the journal that says the bill was read three times at length, section to section and placed before the body for final consideration. Yeah. Yeah. That's all make-believe. It never happened. Right. I just, that just tells you on a thing like that, we'll lie about this. What else will we lie about? Right. And that's just kind of how I view it. Basically lie to Idahoans about how the legislative process works too. Right. I mean, we've gotten up to hundreds of bills that are not even allowed to go through the legislative process. So there is the other interesting thing. Um, there's been a fight over personal bills How, why are personal bills so scary to the leadership because it um it shifts the, the power structure and because one of the roles that they've taken upon themselves as speaker so scott bedke speaker of the house he gets to pick who the committee chair um, men and women are, and and then that provides control over what bills uh, go through the process. And so that's a power grab. And it, you, I mean, you've even, I think, pointed out examples where personal bills have been allowed to go through the legislative process historically, but not under this regime. So I know you got here in, in 2015, but what then changed to make that Personal bills did, in fact, get introduced and passed into law. Um, personal bills, uh, more or less, more often will just sit and fester. Um, but at least it was an avenue to get something put on the radar mm -hmm. if you ran into obstacles or some kind of mm -hmm. uh, institutional opposition. What has changed that now makes personal bills so scary that it can't, they are, are the bills more controversial than they used to be or are they No, it, it all goes back to the current speaker of the house who who's welding the power and and specifically grocery tax repeal right he does not want to get rid of the tax on groceries because it is another source of revenue to double our budget and now that we've doubled it it's time to triple it i guess um so we 
he just constantly wants to have that revenue there. Um, when really, I think it's immoral to be taxing our food, especially when we have, you know, a 40 year high on food prices. Um, so that's the most controversial part, but there's a whole handful of bills that are not being allowed to go through the process. I mean, the one of mine that to me is just sickening to think about, but we have 14 year olds who are being told they can get a shot without parental approval and it's in the law that it's legal. And so we've We're tried one of a handful of states that actually have that policy. Yeah. So we try to run it through the Health and Welfare Committee and it is not even allowed a public hearing. And so, you know, the Speaker of the House is close friends from the same district of the chairman of the Health and Welfare Committee, and they've colluded not to allow that law to change. And so we have children out there making decisions without their parents. And I just. Um, and, and you can't do anything about it. Right. So. Heather Scott, I think, uh, made the comment the other day that um, were she in charge, she would allow the Democrats a vote on the LBGTQ bills that they want heard year after year after year, um, for example. Mm -hmm. Would you be comfortable with a process where the left gets to have a consideration of their bills as well as the conservatives? That's the America history that I learned is that when you have a legislator, they are allowed to bring a bill forward and it gets voted on up and down. I can't imagine it any other way except we're living it right now. And so this um, concept that we're protecting people by not voting on something to me is a false sense of security and it's more of a, a regime than it is a constitutional republic. Wow. That's that's uh, some big words there. <laughs> a regime, huh? Is it really that bad? Yes, it's worse than what bad. You call, is it an oligarchy? Is it a dictatorship? Is it what is it? Um <clears throat> probably <laughs> there's a lot of good words we can probably use, but uh probably an oligarchy, I would say controlled by just a handful of people right and other people have no input no ability to get there yeah the, the thing about the, the proposals from the left i always found that if you're if your arguments in support of your position are so great then why couldn't you have a you know if 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 the if if the democrats lbgtq legislation is so bad and it is it shouldn't be terribly hard to hold a hearing right to kill it but at least they've been heard right and you know another factor in this is the fact that the media is only supporting one narrative and there's still a large percentage of idahoans who are believe and trust local media and but we're starting to see that shift away a little bit but when they have that huge um, platform to be able to advertise their agenda um that that hurts conservative values. And so that's why it's so important to have all these alternative um, media sites. Do you talk to the press? No. You don't at all? No. Why not? Because not one thing they share ends up um, accurate. <laughs> Just checking. But your friends still do, your colleagues still do. And, and, you're, and, and, and you still have people throughout the state who read the paper, I guess. I mean, the, 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 the statesman still has more than two, two subscribers, I would imagine. Um, the Press Tribune, probably about five. Um, but they're still reading 
how do you communicate with those people who invariably believe what it is they're reading or hearing on TV? I don't think you do. I think you have to focus on the Idahoans who are frustrated and know that they're being fed a line of bull <clears throat> and just start to feed them information. And that's what I do with my weekly newsletters and, um, and other legislators send out their newsletters as well. So email is that direct communication line with voters is really the, the best way. So here we are in Idaho, um, the state that everyone says is one of the most conservative states. They, they view that by virtue of the, of the legislative makeup. Um, I think they view it by the percentage of people who vote for the Republican candidate for, okay. so they 64% voted for Trump. So they say we're a conservative state, one of the most conservative in that regard. So how worried should people be about the future of the country if a state like Idaho can't even get basic policies correct? Is that something that, that you are worried about? Absolutely. Um, but I'm also a woman of faith and I know that in the end God wins. And so it's our duty just to continue to try to make it the best um, with what we have and to continue to just love one another and to help um, one another when things get rough. And I think things are going to get rougher. And so we just have to continue to um, shed light on corruption, but yet be hopeful um, about our future. It's still a, um, a, a very challenging atmosphere because i mean i've noticed even in committees and on the floor um it's very tense it's very tense there's the gloves have really come off with a lot of people you've been called an extremist for example mm -hmm. which I'm, i don't think you probably count yourself as an extremist but um once you've been called that how do you get into a place where you can communicate um, well, I think you just continue to share the truth, you know, um, doesn't that just make them angrier? <laughs> That's been my experience. Yeah, absolutely. But, and we can share that we're, you know, um, extremely concerned about the indoctrination of our kids, extremely concerned about these mandates that are, are killing people and, um, causing people to lose their jobs. Um, we're extremely concerned about the out-of-control spending, right? And so um, we can't just let them control the narrative and take our words from us. Um, and so we just continue to I expose the corruption. Uh, it's every week I'm highlighting more and more corruption. So shoot me an email if you want my newsletters. Well, I, I do get your, your <laughs> newsletters. Do you, do you think that, um, that, that, that people accept that reality or are they more offended by the heated dialogue, the, uh, the finger pointing, the you know, accusations of ethics violations, uh, um, the, the, the objections, the, the, all, all of that, that's part of it. It, it. it seems that some voters probably look at that and go, Oh, why can't we all just be friends? I mean, mostly Republicans, you 80% agree. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's just what percentage and none of us will know until election day. Right. And, um, and so we just have to try to continue to get toward the word out. It would be easier though, to just kind of go along that that is the standard uh, protocol is to go along, get along, kind of resolve your problems behind closed doors. Um, don't make things into a big stink. Don't make people look bad. Mm -hmm. You're going a very different direction. 
For now, <laughs> I might be an airline pilot soon enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let me ask you about this other the the, the procedural thing that's taking place on the floor, which okay. is the the fight over the grocery tax. Right. And uh, for those of you who don't know about this because you've not read about it in your media, I mean, really, there's been almost no news coverage, which is interesting. Right. Virtually every day, there's been a motion on the floor to call the uh, grocery tax repeal bill out of the Ways and Means Committee, which has lingered in for uh, more than a month. Um, what's the atmosphere on the floor like with some of your uh, uh, your friends and your, your frenemies who, you know, have watched this happen day in, day out? Um, you know, there's probably a little bit of frustration um, on both sides, right? I mean, how come we can't just let the process work? And and then there are those who believe that the speaker should control what bills are allowed to get public hearings. Um, and their loyalty aligns with the oligarchy and their future career depends on their loyalty to the oligarchy. What do you mean by that? Um, so we had w one individual who was trying to uh, support it, calling the bill to the floor for a vote on grocery tax repeal. And that individual was reprimanded and said, you know, that's potentially going to impact um, your position on a committee, could impact your future election. Um, so there's a lot of um, um, closed door fear mongering going on or strong arming going on. And, and that's been the case ever since, you know, I've been in the legislature. The idea so. being that if you're a vice chairman or you're a chairman, um, you're in any kind of position of leadership, then your job is to vote with the, uh, the, the chairs of the other committees, I guess, the, the chairman of the committee who's being asked, to, who's asking the body to excuse from reporting the bill. Right. And that's what they call the whole procedural. It's a procedural vote. Which means so over time, the number of people who've sided with um, the motion to call a bill out of committee has dropped. Is the strategy working? Um, maybe inside the chamber, but for people who are paying attention and for voters, I think they're on the losing side of history when it comes to obstructing the will of the people. So, but so, so you're saying that for, I don't want to, I hate when I start putting words in people's mouths and I, I need to break that habit. But so you're saying that in the commit in, in the chamber, the, perhaps it's not resonating with, maybe it's even making people angry that that's going on and people out there aren't, aren't really getting it. Um, right. So I think there's a, it's a strong between what, 11 and 15 votes every yeah. time we try to call it to the, but you know, actually that number is growing since when I first got here. I mean, we were what, five, six, seven, yeah. and now, and now we're growing. So over the last couple of elections, we've actually increased the number of conservatives in the house. You have, but the, there's still not enough of them to call out the grocery tax repeal bill. Right. Why does the House go along with operating under such constraints? So you would think that individual House members would take the Speaker and the Majority Leader aside and say, you know, I was here to represent 45,000 of my constituents, and you're denying me that, that opportunity. Why isn't that happening? I think it's fear. They can't even go to the Speaker and say, this process is terrible? No. 
really? Yeah. Well, if they're so afraid, why wouldn't they vote for a new speaker? They're afraid to do that too. It was a close vote. And so I think, you know, and there's going to be, um, so the current speaker will no longer, he's, he's done, retired as speaker, right? So there is going to be a new speaker. So there's a lot of leveraging going on right now for who's going to uh, be the new speaker. And so they're all counting, you know, their allies. And the allies are being determined by who votes on a procedural motion to pull a bill out of committee. Right. And things like that. I suspect the same thing is also true on bill on votes to kill budget bills. Right. Where it used to be, okay, folks, you know that when a bill comes out of JFAC, everybody votes for it. Everybody right. agree on that? Right. But there has been some movement on that, though. The House has been really good at killing budget bills the last couple of years. And they're demonstrating they still have it in them with the vote today. Right. You know, but it took 20 billion to cut a few million here and there. So <laughs> I don't know that I would say that's pretty good. <laughs> no, well, I mean, it, it looks impressive, but I guess in reality, it's 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 not much of anything. You're right. you're right. I mean, it, it, they're they're not why so such unwillingness to take on hard questions. Medicaid is hard. Tax policy is hard. Um, the budgets, the uh, how to deal with vaccine mandates, how to fight the federal government. Because everything's just going perfectly, Wayne. Oh, okay. Yes. So basically yeah. what you do is you go around and you talk about how terrible Biden is, how wonderful it is that the, balance, the budget is balanced. No, by the way, I'm pro-life. Yes. And winner, winner, chicken dinner. You two can be a, <laughs> uh, a state senator or absolutely or u.s senator even right. as the case may be right it's pretty messed up yeah if we had fair elections <laughs> yeah uh fair elections certainly would have elections are a problem here in idaho too right and we're we're finding more and more examples of that and it's a little bit concerning so definitely want to encourage people to volunteer to vote or yeah Volunteer to vote. Work. <laughs> Work. Um, the polls that are coming up. Um, I foot stomp everywhere I go. Make sure you're affiliated with an actual party um, before March 11th because there's a law sailing through right now that you're not, if you're unaffiliated, you're not going to be able to vote on May 17th. How, so, how bad a problem is election integrity in Idaho? You know, Heritage Foundation ranks us 38th. Um, where we're digging into some concerns uh, right here in the city of Meridian. Uh, we had, or not here in Meridian right now, but in the city of Meridian, down in the Treasure Valley, um, we had 20 individuals who voted, uh, even though they had moved to another area um, just four months prior. So that's, you know, highly um, illegal. <laughs> we still have uh, people, we have a... a Big situation in Ada County where uh, we have underage people registering to vote, about 1,800 of them. Wow. Yeah. Um, we had a situation where we have a, a dead lady up in um, Latah County who's on the voter rolls. We mm. have about 20 individuals who are interstate voting, so they're voting in Idaho and in another state, or at least somebody's using their ID information for them to vote in another state. So lots of um, concerns that we're also looking at here in Idaho. So when people say there's no election integrity problem in Idaho, you don't, you don't, you obviously don't buy that. You found evidence that that's actually not even true. Right. How concerning is that given that you're running for statewide office? It's very concerning. 
um, actually, because I, I've actually heard people in town hall meetings say, you know, tell constituents that, you know, I don't need your vote. Um, and that, that phraseology right there, if somebody who's running for office says, I don't need your vote, that concerns me. Wow. That's, uh, that's pretty shocking and, and damning all at once. Right. So is, is this a known quantity then among elected officials that the election system is messed up sufficiently that I don't need your vote. We've got it all taken care of. I don't know. I'm, That's a very big allegation, you know, Priscilla. Um, for a candidate to say that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, so not to, to kind of jump to where we were or back to where we were in the 2020 election. Um, are you concerned that when you get to election day, that if the results end up being more favorable to certain candidates, including your opponent, that you think there's election fraud taking place? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's a little bit tough, too, because we don't have really strong um, laws for uh, a remedy when you have um, fraud or problems with election integrity. And we saw that uh, play out a little bit in the Meridian City Council race where the election laws were violated and it could have significantly changed the results of or the outcome of the election and nothing was done um, all the way up through kind of the judicial input. Just, uh, just oh, sorry, bummer. Mm. So, and we also saw some concerns up in a Coeur d'Alene race where they were trying to audit some of the, um, the ballots and the, there was just a conflict of the law and they weren't allowed to look at, at the race closer. So it's definitely, and we're trying to, you know, look at different angles and make sure that we have poll watchers and people working the polls and that those people know the laws. Um, just like with these underage um, people registering, that's, that's poll workers who don't quite understand um, some of the restrictions in the law that 17 year olds shouldn't be registering and we shouldn't be inputting their data into the system. I mean, 1800 of them um, being inputted. So 1800. Mm -hmm. Wow. So how much of that <clears throat> is malfeasance? How much of it is accidental? How much of it is planned? I want to hope everything that we found is accidental. Um, but that just means there's a lot of room for improvement from, um, from everybody, from those that are working the polls and from, um, voters themselves. You know, I've had several voters across the state tell me that they showed up on election day just a few months ago, November of 2021, and were told that they had already voted. Wow. And so then you as a voter, what are you supposed to do? What would you do if you showed up and they told you, sorry, you can't vote. You already voted. There's really no, what do you do? I mean, you, you can't call the cops, um, you know? And so I think just um, one lady was given a, um, a felt tip pen to fill out. And she said, everybody in this precinct is using it. But she knew she'd seen what had happened in Arizona. She's like, well, I can't use that pen. They said, no, you have to. There, that's the only type pen that we're allowing people to use. But who, who does she call? What do you do? So just um, being an informed voter and um, and also be you know 
being able to call elected officials and, and let them know what's going on. And, but we've got to keep track of these things as well, right? When the, the bus full of students shows up to the precinct, we need people out there with their cameras keeping track of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think this upcoming election, May 17th, it will be probably, I mean, we're number one on the left's hit list to try to flip our state. To, to, um, so we need all hands on deck to be looking for any irregularities. We were at um, Lincoln Day in Canyon County last night, and I was sitting next to a, a lovely woman, and um, she was talking about um, how she was paying attention to what's going on in Washington, D.C., and what Biden is doing, and the controversy, or not the controversy, the conflict in, in Russia with Ukraine and all that kind of stuff. And... Um, I started asking her about her state legislators. What do you think? What do you think of your state legislators? And she says, you know, to be honest with you, I don't know who my state legislators are. Um, do, which is more of a problem, the election integrity or low information voters that don't really pay attention to what's happening in Boise? I obviously I'd say, you know, low information voters. First of all, because of all the election integrity issues, um, what there's thirty thousand names that should be pulled off the rolls because they're they're not voters anymore. But I don't know that we have a huge amount of we haven't identified any huge amounts of um, interference. And that's mind you, we haven't looked at machines and you know some of these heart technology where I, I yeah haven't looked into that. But low information voters for sure because they are easily influenced by big pharma money. So big pharma is the number one contributor to campaigns in the state, and they are even training candidates. They have specific candidate training seminars for their blue. So this is your big pharma candidates that we're up against. What are those guys after that they spend so much time and energy on Idaho elections? I think money. Money and power. I mean, is it ultimately, for example, we get the right people elected and we can mandate everybody get a vaccine? Is that what you think is happening or is it more? You know, vaccines are one aspect of their revenue, right? You look at the amount of revenue that um, it's the, you just said earlier, the health and welfare budget. Yeah, so it's a crazy. So they, they, that's a huge part of it. And a huge chunk of that is going to big pharma for all sorts of services. Right. And the price of and the cost of services is skyrocketing. Um, we still aren't seeing how much services are required. I know Trump had that as, as, as he was leaving office where he wanted um, costs for services to be required. But I still haven't seen that, right? So, and then, right, the, the same, they are not paying property taxes. And so it, it's quite the monopoly. Um, and so many people are now medicated and um, continually the requirements, the Medicaid requirements are you have to take, go into the doctor so often, get well visits for your children, even though they're not sick. Um, so it's it's quite the racket. That's a very interesting thing. So you look at policies like that, and I'm always very suspicious. It's like, oh, a wellness program to make sure kids don't get sick. And I look at that and I go, oh, a wellness program to make sure you have a continuous supply of patients who are required to show up and be billed. Exactly. Do you, you're the you're more in that camp. How well, much public policy do you think is actually derived by that? 
by the cost or no, the no, fact how, that... how much public policy is is a function of special interest groups just wanting certain things as opposed to in, in the name of public health and safety well absolutely it's uh, it's got to be of it. all of all of it. I mean, it really is i mean that that's how i'm very suspicious of all of that yeah. and you are too but you know some of our friends in the legislature you tell them that and they think that you're a conspiracy theorist yeah but the conspiracy is real <laughs> right i mean it's like yeah you know uh, every time that fred and i had this conversation quite a bit um he went and testified against that workforce housing plan that um the, the state how the state workforce housing proposal whatever mm -hmm. and um you know who wants that you know oh it's it's for it's for workforce housing it's going to help the workers and they're going to be able to have houses and it makes so much sense and then you hear the builders, the developers, um, real estate agents, all these different groups that benefit from it. It's not just about providing a public good. It's about getting some money, some Benjamins. We're as... in the wrong profession, Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly are. Okay, let's wrap this up. Anything else we should know about that you want to mention that's taking place? Um, you know, I could talk the Second Amendment bill that I introduced this morning. Oh, please. But otherwise... Tell me about the Second Amendment bill. Yeah, sure. So over the last six years, thanks to um, Idaho Second Amendment Alliance, Idaho has gone from, I don't know, we were the 15th, 10th, to tied for first mm -hmm. for the most friendly, um, gun-friendly state in the nation. But the left is always trying to uh, carve out their little inroads into how to take away your ability to carry a firearm. And the most recent um, ploy, you could say, is they uh, specifically, there's several space, uh, places across the state, but up in Sandpoint, there's a public park and the city leased the park out to an organization to have a music festival. And then they put up signs and said, you can't bring a gun. Who, who put up the signs? The, um, it was, I guess, the, the company who's doing the, the music, music festival, festival okay. put up a sign saying you cannot carry a gun inside the music festival. But it's on public property. Mm -hmm. Our law, constitutional um, right to be able to carry a gun on public property. And so the situation went to court and an activist judge said, when the city leased the property, they gave them property rights for a temporary amount of time, which then via, you know, um, suspends your ability to carry a gun, which is totally unconstitutional in my mind. I'm sure it will be, it's being appealed, but what is happening, it's, it's continuing to happen across the state. So at rodeos and so hypothetically, we could have the city of Boise could section off a part of public part of town or a park and just deem it now a sanctuary <laughs> they could they could lease it to anybody for a dollar and then it would be that would be it would become a sanctuary for people who don't like guns because they're scared yes, of everything exactly and that is one way that these local municipalities can take away your ability to carry a gun i did not realize that the constitution didn't apply anymore the moment you lease a piece of property so do you do you not have like first amendment rights on on lease property <laughs> can 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 they can they search and seize your your possessions on uh, 
on leased property. Is that how that works? Well, exactly. So we've had judges uphold your First Amendment rights um, when property is leased, oh, oh, but then, but not the second. The Second Amendment is different because right. because guns equal right. scary equal must yes. be banned and stuff. Yes. Interesting. Part of the so, so that's what your your bill fixes that problem. Yes, closes the loophole. It's too bad that it's not really a loophole. It's just a misreading of the of the Constitution, the law by the activist judge. Yep. Who and who was the judge? I don't know off the top of my okay. head. Yeah. But that was that was uh, Scott Hernan's case, and yes, yeah, yeah, he's appealing that. I I, I presume. Yes. Um, okay. Yeah. Any, any, any other bills we should know about? That's probably it for tonight. That's probably it for tonight. Okay. Thank you. Well, thank you for being on the program. I really enjoy visiting with you. We, we can do this all, all night, but, <laughs> um, and thank you for your hard work. It's, it's, it's not easy and sometimes it's not fun, but it's, oh, it's fun. Is it? Oh no. I don't know. Sometimes it really is not fun. Let's be, okay. Maybe you enjoy it more than I do. Yeah. It's depressing, but it's, fun. well, it's just, it's, 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 um, it's dis it's disappointing that you have to drag a Republican controlled legislature kicking and screaming towards freedom. Yeah. Um, that, that's the thing that I, I just can't get over. It's like, I, I'm a, I believe in free markets, except for when I don't. Oh, All okay. the time. I believe in constitutional uh, rights, except yeah. for, except for uh, most of these bills that I'm going to vote for. Right. People are waking up. They are waking up. May thank, 17th. Thank you for what you're doing. And um, we'll be back again on Thursday. I think we've got, uh, we were going to have Chuck Winder on, but Chuck Winder canceled. Can you believe that? I, oh, for one, am shocked. Sorry. Yeah, me, I really wanted to interview him. I was really looking forward to it. I hope maybe, maybe he had something come up. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. We're going to have Dustin Manwaring. And then we're also going to have um, a recap of KTVB, which is a TV station in Boise that they still have a few viewers watching the news or what they call news, more propaganda. They're doing a three-part special on the Idaho Freedom Foundation. Dustin and I will do a takedown of what they said and what the reality is versus what you saw in the news report had you watched it. So thanks again for joining us. We'll talk to you next time.